This is Growing Pulse Crops, and I'm your host, Tim Hammerich. Today on episode two of season three. Pea is the only one that is suitable for both haying and grazing. The others are only recommended for grazing. Most of that has to do with that dry down period and getting a good quality hay out of it and not reducing that potential for molding in that hay. Dr. Miranda Meehan joins the show. She's the Livestock Environmental Stewardship Specialist with North Dakota State University Extension. Her work primarily deals with grazing management and the balance between our environment and our livestock. This is a great follow-up to our last episode with Nate Powell-Palm, who talked about how important both pulses and cattle are to his rotation. Today, we talk about making that work. Specifically, we'll cover the role of pulses in full-season cover crops, the considerations of incorporating livestock into crop rotations, and we'll also get into some of the biggest questions and concerns about integrating cattle and crops, like compaction and stocking rates and forage quality. A ton of great information here for anyone who's ever considered both cattle and pulses in some sort of rotation. We're going to start with a few of the basics that are going to be helpful if you haven't yet tried a system like this which is where should one start with a full season cover crop? I think the most common thing we see people do is starting with cover crops is those winter cereals because that's an easy way to get into it and it doesn't interrupt our cropping system much. And so I think that's where we first see people starting to dabble in those cover crops. That's a really good source for grazing, um, getting animals out a little earlier grazing than we would if we had to wait for pastures to be ready for grazing. But also there's some flexibility to incorporate early spring cover crop or a late fall cover crop, depending on plants, what you have in your cropping system and timing of that. If you're looking for forage production and you want to reduce your risk, I really encourage people to look at a full season cover crop. And yes, you're not getting a crop that season, but you're getting those soil health benefits and you're getting two to one forage crop, depending on what you're planting. You might be able to have a dual use crop where you're haying, grazing, or you're grazing it twice, haying it twice. And so how does that offset in terms of the value of that forage for a crop versus a crop? And so that's something, especially as we move west, we encourage people to consider where we have limited moisture. We might not have enough growth on those shorter time length cover crops. Now, this should all be sounding pretty familiar to you if you listen to last episode with Nate Palpalm and how he described his system. And Miranda agrees that these cover crops for hay or grazing can really be complementary to pulses. I think just knowing the lack of cover that comes following the pulse crop, if we can integrate something like this and have cover, it will in help increase that moisture retention. Um, it's going to help with snow capture potentially. So being able to help with the soil moisture contact and enhance that, I think is a real win to their system as well. And obviously, is anytime we can add flexibility into our, our livestock operation, that's a win too. One of the first questions that often come to mind when thinking about cover crops is what crops should be planted for optimal forage and for rotational benefits? And that's actually a little bit more of a difficult question to answer because of how many factors are going to be dependent on your specific situation. Honestly, I think it really depends on your goals and when you want to use that. So if we're going to go with a winter cereal, we're 
only going to have one species. We're going to have a triticale or a rye if you're going to be grazing and probably winter wheat if you want to hay it. When we look at if you want something that's available for early summer, spring haying or grazing, then we're going to look at a cool season mix. And so we're looking at some of those oats and peas. That's a really nice um, cool season mix that we see that's pretty common and affordable. If we're looking at that full season cover crop, we're going to have a mix of, of warm and cool seasons. And I honestly encourage people to start simple. Our cover crop mixes are usually around seven, eight species that we use. Once we get past that, we don't see expression of a lot of those other species that we put in there. And also it gets expensive. When we're grazing, we want to keep it as affordable and the cost as low as possible because we're trying to be cheaper than what it is to graze those animals on rangeland or to have them in a feedlot. And so we want to make sure that we're not exceeding that cost when we're developing our mix. Now, in addition to watching costs and nutritional balance, Miranda says timing is also very important. For example, in a frost situation, legumes might lose their quality, but brassicas will be able to maintain a little bit better. But she says pulses, peas in particular, can be a great fit in these full season cover crop mixes. Yeah, in terms of our pulses, I think the best fit in a grazing situation is our field, our forage peas. They are very affordable. They're under 50 cents a pound. And so if we don't have something established, you don't feel bad about it. You're not out a lot and lowers that risk. And so that's the one we use a lot. And it's a cool season. It starts growth nice and early. We actually have seen regrowth on it when we graze it. Good regrowth even in the fall. And that's one of them that I really, we really like to use in our mixes. We've used others in research, um, cow peas and some faba beans. Those species, um, the faba beans, another cool season. That cow pea is one of our, our warm seasons. But they get expensive, and with our warm seasons, we often don't have enough time to get good growth on them before we want to graze. And so it's not as economically feasible. It really is going to depend on your goals, too. So pea is the only one that is suitable for both haying and grazing. The others are only recommended for grazing. Most of that has to do with that dry down period and getting a good quality hay out of it and not reducing that potential for molding in that hay. And not only are those peas going to be a versatile addition for either haying or grazing, like she just said, they're also going to be nutritionally good for the cattle and good for the soil. Yeah, so those peas are going to add protein and energy to that ration. Um, so they're going to increase the quality of whatever cereal you have in that ration, whether it's um, cool season grass or if you're getting into warm seasons in your millets, some um, sorghum sedans, it's going to increase that quality. When we look at the soil health, too, we know that those legumes play a, a special niche in our soil health development. And so also, you know, we need to consider not just our grazing goals, but what are our soil health goals for our operation? And are we low on nitrogen that we want to have those legumes in part of our mix? For many of you listening to this podcast, you might already be growing a pulse crop and maybe you want to make sure you don't include a pulse in your cover crop mix because you're actually trying to stretch out your rotation. For that situation, Miranda recommends some non-pulse legumes to consider. 
So other common ones that we've seen is hairy vetch. And then the other one would be there's a forage soybean. I think when you think of cost effective, those are the ones that are still within range and you can get establishment. One of the tricky things with the legumes is that getting them in and getting enough growth on them to make it worth the value or the cost of putting them in. And so that's why we tend to go to that forage or field pea. Miranda said timing as far as when you can start hang or grazing these cover crops is going to vary wildly based on mainly moisture. But if you get it in early, you should be able to get out there and hay it or start grazing it in June and still get some good regrowth. She also said for warm season, you might need to wait until August before you start that hang or grazing. But again, it's going to vary with a lot of factors. Either way, the benefits of including something like this in your rotation are tangible. We're going to see those enhancements in soil health that we talk about, the increased organic matter, aggregate stability, the increased soil nutrients, so nitrogen, phosphorus, specifically when we have livestock out there grazing. If you're haying and you're selling it, you're still getting the value from that hay. And this year, that might have been the way to go with prices of hay. So there's still that value, I think. The biggest value is if you have a diversified operation, so you have both crops and livestock. We see when we have cover crops for grazing, we're increasing the resilience of our system by having greater flexibility. It really pays off in a year like this where we have some challenges and we're not getting as much forage growth on our traditional grazing resources, our pasture rangeland, our or hay that was going to get us through the winter. And so having that flexibility in your system cannot be understated, especially in a year like this. And I, there's a lot of research out there that shows that real value, you know, to incorporating cover crops, it's seen the most when we have livestock integrated because you're getting a return by that savings to feed or forage that you would either have to grow somewhere else or bring into your operation. Now, how late into the season you can graze these cover crops is also going to depend on a number of factors, primarily the abundance and quality of forage, as well as water availability. Miranda has seen some wrap up by the end of October and others last into maybe January in those northern climates. It also depends on how many cattle you are grazing on the available forage. Because of all of this variability, it's also important to be conscious of your forage quality. Miranda recommends testing as much as needed to make sure you're aware of this nutritional quality. Typically, at the timing of that we're grazing cover crops, this isn't a huge issue. They're either right away in the spring when we're grazing, it's definitely high enough quality to meet the needs of where those animals are in terms of their production cycle. And then when we think about fall, we're, we're usually early in gestation, they're finishing up that lactating, so their demands are lowest. And so as long as we can get them to maintain nutritionally, we're in a good place. And so it's pretty difficult. We have run into scenarios where this has been an issue. Last year, we had that early frost in September and the quality of our fall cover crop really took a hit there. And so when we look at that, you know, test, 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 we always talk about testing feeds and it's not any different for those things we're grazing. If we're not sure, test it so you know what you're dealing with and you can supplement to make sure that you're meeting those animals' needs. You know, last year we learned a lot and this year we were prepared to supplement on those research trials to make sure we were meeting those animals' needs. But we didn't have an early frost and we didn't need to do that. So 
It's just going to depend on the year. And usually when we select a mix, we're going to develop that mix. A full season to especially, we're going to have those cool and those warm seasons. We're going to have our legumes. We're going to have our brassicas. And usually, regardless of what established, you're going to have something that meets their needs, whether it's just those cool seasons and a pea, it's still going to meet their needs. Um, it might not be ideally what we were hoping for, but we're still going to have something established that should meet their needs, their nutritional requirements at the time we're grazing it. So with forage testing being such a critical component, I asked Miranda to provide us some more details about how exactly we go about doing that. How do we make sure that we are sampling and testing effectively? If you're testing for nutritional quality, you're not going to separate species. You're just going to go across that field, clipping maybe four to five locations, making sure that it's representative of the species in that location. And then you will send that to a lab. They'll grind it and mix it. And so that what they take is a representative pole or subsample of that, and they'll test that for nutrition. But we want to make sure, so if you have a field that has hills, you're getting a representative of the number of hilltops, low areas in that field. Typically, we don't have too much variability, but as we go west, there's more. So that's something we need to be cognizant of as we're sampling. When we're sampling for things for nitrates, it's important to know how that animal grazes those different plants. So you can either do the whole plant and send the whole plant in. Um, what we tell people to do with corn, for example, is we know that they're going to start with the leaves, the cob, and the upper part of the stalk, and then go to the lower part of the stalk. The lower part of the stalk tends to accumulate most nitrates. And so if we separate those samples, then we can make an informed decision of maybe we graze it until it gets to this height and take them off. And we should reduce our risk of nitrate poisoning or toxicity by doing that. For various reasons, you may want to manage the cattle in a way that they're not eating too much of any particular crop or mix. Soybeans might be one example of this. Miranda says one way to mitigate this problem is through strip grazing. In most things, if we take the right precautions, we can graze. Um, one thing would be soybeans to be cautious. And that would just be if they actually have the beans. There's some risks of acidosis. Even when we graze corn, we want to be careful because we have some digestive things that can be disrupted if we don't do that properly. If we just let them go out and pick through a whole field instead of limiting them and making sure that they know how to graze that cover crop. And we see that even in a full season cover crop, that if we give them access to whole field, they're going to go through and pick out what they like. And so we typically strip graze and that helps them use the field more efficiently and also reduces the waste since they're not running across that field, picking out what they like and trampling the other things. We call it strip grazing because we're just giving them access to one strip at a time, but it's the same concept as rotational grazing. Another important consideration to keep in mind as you're looking at your full season cover crops are weed threats in whatever you will be planting on that ground after the cover crop. I think the biggest concern I've heard of and I've seen issues with is weed issues and being able to control weeds. Especially when you have a full season cover crop, you can't really do a lot because you have a mix and you're going to have broadleafs and cereals. So you don't have 
really options for controlling weeds. And so that's one of the biggest issues we hear about. Um, Obviously, you're going to have to look at your mix and what you had in that mix when you're considering what crop you're putting in next. You know, thinking ahead and knowing that I'm going to put this after this cover crop. And so I don't want these species here. One concern that comes up often, particularly from row crop farmers that are considering grazing for maybe the first time, is will these cattle cause compaction? That is the question we always get when we talk about bringing livestock in. And in the northern Great Plains, there's a lot of research that shows it's not an issue, especially when we're doing that fall grazing or a season-long grazing, and then we're going through winter, a freeze-thaw cycle. That freeze-thaw cycle that we go through up here and the clay content of our soils, when it shrinks and swells, it breaks up that compaction that we see from grazing them. And that's all the research from up in the Northern Great Plains shows that to date, where we always continue to evaluate that when we do any of these types of trials. The one risk would be when you're spring grazing a rye or one of those winter cereals, and we have a lot of moisture, soil saturated, we have a risk of compaction at that point, especially when we think about putting a crop in right after that. And so that would be the one scenario where we would have a risk of compaction that would impact a crop. So if you're listening to this and you're thinking, okay, I'm ready to start grazing some cattle as part of my rotation, how should you determine how many animals to bring in into any given field? Well, that's where terms like stock density and stocking rate can come in handy. Yeah, and in terms of stock density, I think that just is more of a function of what you have available for animals. From the research we're doing, it's really a function of your operation size, animals available for grazing, because stock density is a measure of number of animals per unit area. I mean, in theory, as we have more animals per unit area, we'll graze a shorter period of time. And so that can reduce some impacts potentially. We don't know. The research isn't there yet. And it should increase nutrient distribution as we have that increased stock density and efficiency and use of that cover crop. When we talk about stocking rate, that kind of goes back to what are your goals? How much forage residue do you want left behind? And in terms of animal performance and soil health benefits and impacts to soil physical properties, So far in the research that's been done, which is limited, we're in the middle of a project, so hopefully we'll learn more, but we haven't seen an impact to those in terms of of having a higher stocking rate or greater utilization, leaving less residue behind over the long term. You know, these are two-year projects. Typically, there might be, um, as we're leaving, less organic matter, but a lot of that organic matter comes from the roots. So I think a lot of the residue question is more of how much cover do you want left behind to protect that soil over the winter? And you would probably use a 35, a take half, leave half, that 35% harvest efficiency if your goal is to have more residue left behind. When we use the full use of 50% harvest efficiency, there's not a lot there, but what is there is incorporated into the soil. It's been trampled down. It's into the soil already a lot of the time. And so that does you know, speed up and change how that organic matter is broken down as well. So as we move forward with this research, hopefully we'll learn more about that and can provide more direction. Well, hopefully as more farms start to integrate livestock, it's likely that we'll see improved genetics for these cover crops to help optimize for agronomy, grazing, and soil health. 
there's been more and more interest in cover crops and especially that livestock integration. So you're seeing more and more different varieties come out. Um, we're seeing more of the, for example, um, winter wheats for grazing coming out, those forage varieties. And so that's definitely an increased focus that we've seen since this cover crops for grazing really started 10, 15 years ago. And there's a lot of species. I would say when we think about the legumes that maybe is an area that we don't have as many options and having more options there would be really beneficial, especially when we think about some of our federal programs that require a legume to be incorporated into a cover crop. And you're really limited on options, especially when you look at the costs of those as well and just their ability to establish and grow in the seasons we have up here. But we have seen a lot of progress in terms, especially of the brassicas and different varieties of brassicas for grazing. Well, as we get ready to wrap up today's episode, I wanted to know what's coming next. I asked Miranda to share some of the questions driving her future research when it comes to livestock crop integration. Yeah, so we're in the middle of a project um, looking at the impacts of that utilization and stock density on soil health within a full season cover crop. So we'll hopefully we'll be able to answer some of those questions in the future. Obviously drought through that for a bit of a loop. Another thing we're hoping to get funding to do is do a little bit more work on those winter cereals because we know that there's a lot of flexibility with those. And so different grazing management strategies for winter cereals. Um, we're getting a lot of questions on fall and spring grazing and how that fall grazing impacts that stand. And we don't have the answers to that right now. The, the research that's been done on those has been done in the South where they have a longer growing season and more, more moisture. And we don't know how that's going to work in our system yet. Well, I definitely want to thank Dr. Miranda Meehan for taking the time to share with us here today. If you're interested in any of these topics, I'd highly encourage you to reach out to her, especially if you're in North Dakota or maybe find her counterpart in your part of the world. Certainly, livestock adds a whole new level of complexity to an already complex system, so there's a ton to learn in this area. And before we close out here today, I want to make sure you're subscribed to the show so you don't miss our next episode featuring Dr. Claire Keen. And so the farmers that have grown chickpea with flax uh, say that they, they don't see as much ascocyte in their fields, they don't need to spray as often, so they see it as a really important disease management tool. And so I wanted to do the small plot work looking at that at kind of the finer scale to see if we can replicate that and then ideally try to figure out why. Why does it work? So make sure you're a subscriber to the Growing Pulse Crops podcast on your podcast platform of choice so you catch that upcoming episode as well. The Growing Pulse Crops podcast series is overseen by the Pulse Crops Working Group with funding from the North Central IPM Center, USDA NIFA, the USA Dry Pea and Lentil Council, and the North Central Extension Risk Management Education Program. We're releasing these episodes two times per month throughout the growing season, and we want to make sure that the information is relevant to you. So please tweet us with any feedback or suggestions by using the hashtag growing pulse crops. And we'll be back with another great episode in a couple weeks. 